you have to love what you're doing. You have to like the people you're working with, like not a hundred percent of the time, but we spend right. way too much time at work and our careers to not really like what you're doing and feel connected to the, the mission and to the organization and feeling like you're making a difference. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, friends. David right here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am joined by Joyce. Oh, Joyce, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Joyce, for our listeners who may not know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Sure. So I currently serve as the Bryce President and CIO at Moffitt Cancer Center down in Tampa, Florida. Been here for a grand total of six months, but been in healthcare for a couple of years now in similar roles, you know, at prior organizations, last one before that being at Beaumont Health in Southeast Michigan. So, but uh, really having a lot of fun and just enjoying learning about the organization and, you know, the people and the culture. So it's been good. Amazing. Yeah, I'm excited to dive a little bit deeper into that. But before that, we'd like to start every episode with one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today. I would probably say trust yourself. I think, you know, a lot of times, especially when people are thinking about leadership and their own personal journey and where you want to be, we look at people we admire, whether it's mentors or leaders at other organizations and the, okay, well, I could probably try to be like that person, but I think everybody has unique gifts, unique skill sets, and you shine most when you do what you're gifted with. And so I think really taking advice and cues from others is great, but also with just really having some faith and, and trust in yourself. And also though, giving yourself freedom and grace to make mistakes and learn from them. I've always been my own worst critic, but then when I think about how I engage with my team, I give them the grace to make mistakes and we learn from them and we move on. So just to allow ourselves also the freedom to learn it as we go, because nobody's perfect. That's probably where I would start. Yeah, definitely some impactful advice to start the show. I know that as an entrepreneur, imposter syndrome is something that I personally struggled with along the way and took a lot of work to kind of like you said, really trust myself and really step into the results I was creating and believe that, wow, I'm doing this. You know, I have value to bring to the table, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think what's unique about this day and age is that 
leaders are no longer kind of appointed, if you will, right? I think I'm not going to date myself, but when I was first entering the workforce, it seemed like there was always a clear succession plan, right? And XYZ manager was next to be the next director and then supervisor. And people were kind of chosen, you know, in that way. But nowadays, people become leaders because others recognize their ability to lead, right? And even if somebody is appointed as a leader, it'll pretty soon be evident if others aren't following or if the business partners aren't just seeing that partnership, then that individual usually doesn't succeed as in their role. And so I think if somebody becomes a leader, they should have confidence in themselves that people have seen my capability and my ability to lead in my own way and take a little bit of hope, I guess, and confidence in that and, and know that it's just not them, but people believe in them. So I think that's something to recognize and be proud of. Yeah, 100%. Really interested, Joyce, in learning a little bit more about how you started out. I know you've been in healthcare for a number of years now, but where did you begin your journey and how did you get to be the CIO of one of the most esteemed cancer centers in the world? Well, one, I feel very blessed and very thankful for the opportunity. I will probably start by saying my first job in high school was at a movie theater. I worked in the concession stand wearing head-to-toe polyester and making five dollars an hour. And and we had a couple of managers there, and I think they were probably college age, but to a 14-year-old, they were really big and very impressive and, you know, a little bit intimidating. And so sometimes we were asked to do things that were probably outside the scope of what a concession stand worker should be doing. So I remember, you know, one day, 110 degrees, we were asked to take weeds out between the cracks in the parking lot outside. And I don't even know if that was necessary, but we were asked to do it and we did it. And looking back on that, you know, I should have said something or I should have, you know, said, asked a question like, why are we doing this? And so after that happened, I also thought, I don't want to be a leader because it kind of feels like it's a power trip and that's just not something I want to do. I'm much happier being a doer. Even after college, I went into consulting. Back then was when the big five or big three was all the rage. Honestly, I think consulting is a great place for anybody to start in their career for a couple of reasons. One, you learn to provide value really quickly. Otherwise, you know, you're getting the boot, right? Clients are paying a lot for you. I think you also learn about how to just learn about a lot of industries and businesses very quickly and get up to speed. And finally, consulting is all about being able to translate what a client is looking for into a really tactical, practical solution. And so learning all those skills and the ability to be flexible, I think is great. Now, this was, of course, pre-9-11. So, you know, you could get to the airport, you know, 20 minutes before the flight, there are flights every hour. <laughs> it's a lot easier, but regardless, it was good. And then after that, I went into you know, more just programming and, and development. And I liked it. I liked sitting in my little cube, kind of being in control of my own little domain and coding. And I thought, and I did that probably for about 10 years. And I could just do this my whole career. I'm a CU developer and <laughs> you know, move on from there. But thinking back to the whole movie theater time frame, as I was in that role, there were things that I saw that I was like, this isn't right. There's a better way. And so just giving examples, I saw that a lot of times IT was perceived as this big black hole and requests go in, they sometimes come out. When they come out, they sometimes look like what you wanted. There was very little communication between IT and the business. There was just a lot of inflexibility as well. It's like, yes, we can do this. No, we can't. Technology folks, sometimes it's good that we're very black and white and very binary, but life isn't always like zeros and ones. 
And so I saw even just within my team of developers, the way we were operating and there's just opportunity for change, right? Better engagement with the business and more kind of more, we didn't call it agile back then, but a more agile way of working so that, you know, we were constantly evaluating whether we were delivering and whether we were on point with the requirements. And so as I started to work with my team, my peers at that time to kind of operate better, start reaching out and establishing those relationships with the business. Because I saw this opportunity to change, I think I was more and more given roles of leadership, whether it was in starting as informal team leaders, the supervisors, as managers. It's kind of funny because I, I would never become a leader, but kind of to my earlier point, you know, it's something that just kind of happened organically, right? And finally, just taking on the curve progression led me to being at Moffitt. I've always wanted to be in healthcare, but it didn't have the stomach for it. So this was just a great opportunity. You know, my both my mother and my grandmother, they passed from cancer. So coming to a place where the mission is to prevent and to cure cancer is just amazing because I tell people when they ask me like, what do you do? I don't work in IT. I'm actually curing cancer because that's what I feel like I'm doing. And I think everybody who works at that organization is really contributing to that. And I think that's just a great thing. That's probably, I would sum up my journey. Oh, I love it. And I love that you, as a leader, are so connected with that mission of the organization. You know, that really resonates for me. My mom is the founder and CEO of a behavioral health nonprofit. And she was kind of the one who taught me that impacting the life of one individual at a time, the butterfly effect of that on generations to come and just being connected with the mission of helping people. That's one of the reasons I got into healthcare too, just to, if I can play a small role in improving the patient's experience, improving the caregiver's experience, that's really exciting to me. It's more than just IT digital consulting. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciated what you said about leadership too. I think that for a long time in IT, particularly in healthcare, it was that kind of very linear ladder. People were in roles for a long time. And then particularly over the last five to 10 years, but even more so in the last five years, you're seeing more leaders from in and outside of the healthcare world step into leadership positions in healthcare, bringing kind of a fresh perspective, not only on IT and digital strategy and execution, but it's like a culture shift too. It's like what you were referring to before when you had the parable from when you were younger and relating it to now. For me, I interpret that as the difference between managing people and inspiring people to follow me as a leader, right? So yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I think for both of my roles in healthcare, one of the reasons that they told me that I was chosen was because I had this experience outside of healthcare. You know, I spent about five years working at Domino's and a lot of times we proudly called ourselves a technology company that happens to sell pizza. And right. well, a lot of those things I learned there, because I think that was the first place where I saw technology being an enabler of the business and actually generating more revenue and more profit and being, you know, making Domino's be a market differentiator. I mean, I think last year I saw they were doing something where it's like, this was after I left, we had an app on your phone and based on your facial expression, it was trying to guess what you wanted to order. <laughs> I don't know how well that actually worked. Maybe it did. Just the creativity and that innovation. You know, one of the most famous things is, you know, like the Domino's pizza trailer. Yes, yes. I believe that came out of just an innovation day where they're like, let's think about where are opportunities and what are the things that we can create. So I think that attitude, just innovation and 
looking at things differently and not always saying, well, this is how we've always done it, I think was a great culture that they have. You know, the other thing that I think really resonates with me is how much they use just data-driven decision-making, right? And it's not just like, let's try this and see if it works. Let's try to understand, you know, when are our customers coming in? You know, when do we need to have more staff? And let's look at this data and make decision-making, whether it's just using just regular forecasting or really going more into that, you know, deep AI and machine learning. But I think healthcare, the same principles can apply, right? Let's figure out when, you know, our staffing models for nursing or what are the preferences of our patients in terms of how do we engage with them? When do we reach out to them? How do they like their appointments based out and so forth? So I think healthcare has a lot to learn from other organizations and not only other organizations, but other industries. hundred percent. I mean, healthcare is one of the only industries that for so long was completely not consumer driven, right? Mm-hmm. It just wasn't. And I love that you brought up the pizza tracker because honestly, I think Domino's was, has to be one of the first organizations to roll that out in an app because now a bunch of the restaurants do that. And just the setting of expectations, right? Where as a customer, you're not wondering how long something's going to take or simple, but it makes such a huge difference. And there's something satisfying about watching anything kind of progress down a pathway like that. So yeah, that's super cool. Prior years, well, with healthcare, you kind of had a captive audience and patients, they were kind of patients for life. But now there's so much choice that you really have to stop thinking about it as a patient, but really more of a consumer, knowing that they have a choice and they're not necessarily as loyal as people used to be. You know, this concept of family doctor and I go there, my kids go there, we're going to keep going there. I just think that, you know, that's really going away. And so we have to be savvy to that and understand, you know, really what our patients are looking for and what they need. Yeah, I love that, especially with all the disruption from more retail and outpatient clinics. And especially as we look at a shift, I suppose not as much in cancer treatment, but with primary care and other specialties to more outpatient and in-home care, even telehealth. You know, we're seeing that I really am so grateful that it's finally pressing the issue for the organizations really to step into you know, providing a great experience or starting to try to provide a great experience for consumers. Because I feel like for the longest time, there was this hierarchical relationship between healthcare organizations and the patient, right? Where it was like, we're the doctor, you're the patient. So, you know, if our scheduling systems aren't good or, you know, you're going to wait in the waiting room for 30 minutes, I mean, we're the only game in town, right? And we have your loyalty. So it's just what it is. Sorry about that. Right. It's just no longer acceptable. Or your bill is wrong. Maybe it's right. I don't know. Work it out with your pair, right? It's just, you know, that right. kind of attitude. We say patients first. We really have to mean it, right? Yeah, 100%. I, I think we're getting there. I think the, the pandemic absolutely forced us to get there. But interestingly enough, I think this kind of being thrown into digital is also uncovered just a lot of places where even prior to technology, we have process issues that we need to resolve first, right? Right. And so, you know, technology is not the the end all cure all, no pun intended. And so that's been interesting to observe as well. And I'm seeing the push towards digital actually, I think, waning a little bit because I think there's the realization now that, you know what, first we need to figure out, do we need to fix our workflows, you know, or you could have the best scheduling algorithm in the world, but if you don't have providers or staffing to meet that, then what's the point? Like I'm in this app, it's beautiful and there's no slots for me to pick. 
So it, it all has to go together, not, you know, one or the other. 100%. I mean, and we saw during the pandemic, providers rolled out certain platform as a service solutions, especially on the communications front to solve an immediate need. It kind of was a stopgap, but it was a technology solution that was kind of slapped on. And now we're kind of going back. And like you're saying, a lot of the issues are rooted in people process methodology and needing to really dig into that prior to technology really coming in and complementing that. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm finding the more, especially now that I've come to Moffitt, because I think cancer patients are, a lot of them, you know, there's fear there, right? Fear, stress, the unknown. Making an appointment because you feel the amount of cancer is very different from, you know, making an appointment for like a flu shot with my PCP. Right. And so I think we're finding that a lot of these patients, they want that human interaction, even when registering because they have questions, right? And it's also on response times that you might not be able to get with if you're doing texting with somebody or just, you know, putting, filling in a form online and just waiting for a response. So I think as an industry, we also need to really think about the demographics of our patients, you know, the situation that they're in, their needs before kind of thinking about like a one size fits all solution. So that's one thing I learned when coming to Moffitt and that just thinking about maybe Digital isn't appropriate for everything here than just being very wise and in how we roll something out. Yeah, 100%. In my experience, in those instances, it becomes how can I enable that individual Moffat side of the table, for example, to provide the most empathetic experience possible by, for example, offloading when an individual is reaching out, just verification, right? So I can verify their name, date of birth, and things of that nature using automation. I can use tools once the individual is routed to a human to pop all their details up. So when they are authenticated and I say, Joyce, I see that you just had a procedure two weeks ago. How are you feeling? As opposed to that name, date of birth. And then even past that, I'm using AI or knowledge management to kind of populate what needs to happen next. Then when you have a call that is typically, in my experience with a cancer patient, a little longer than maybe your normal booking a flu shot example, you're optimizing that as much as possible while still providing a compassionate experience, right? No, I love that. I mean, really the idea of technology making more value added human interaction experience. Because I think as much as we focus on the quote unquote patient experience as kind of a little bit of a buzzword nowadays, I've been thinking a lot about just even the clinician experience, because that's what someone's going to remember, right? It's how did I feel when I engaged with this provider? You know, were they distracted? Were they frustrated with technology? Did they have to spend a lot of time typing things in, you know, or looking things up on their computer or their iPad? I think that's where we can really make a big difference also in allowing providers to do what they do best and let technology be an enabler versus a hindrance. And so I think, you know, really thinking about even that side of it too, I think is really important as a technology leader today. Yeah, 100%. So Joy, I'm loving this dialogue. One thing that I did want to understand about your career, it's always great to talk with someone who came from a consulting background, because like you said, you had so many experiences, you know, working with all these different industries. Was there a time that you had a challenging moment professionally or personally or failure, if you will, that sticks out in your mind as something that you really took a profound lesson from or, you know, it was kind of a turning point in your career. Anything that sticks out in your mind? Many. <laughs> but I've been blessed to have a lot of really good mentors 
as well as people invested in me to provide me with executive coaching. And so sometimes they've been great to kind of hold the mirror up, you know, in front of me so I can see. And this was when I was a director. And one of the things that I was doing was, you know, I'm a type A personality. I was working really hard out of my own volition. I really wanted to and wanting to always produce the best and not because I was trying to get ahead or impress, but that's just, it's what I wanted to do. But, and I had a team, I was probably working a lot more than any of my team members. And I would tell myself that, well, how can I expect them to work at the top of their game if I'm not doing it, right? But I didn't see it, but I was doing so many things, I think that were hindering my growth at that time. You know, one, I wasn't giving my team opportunity to kind of step out of their comfort zone and try things that would help them grow into leadership. So, you know, offloading. I was also, unbeknownst to me, I was stressing myself out, right? I mean, working, there's going to be ebbs and flows. Sometimes you're going to have to work do the 50, 60 hours a week, but I'm always doing this on a consistent basis, you know, till 1, 2 a.m. And sometimes sending emails at that time and not realizing my influence, I guess, and impact as a leader probably was making people think, well, Am I expected to do that? Am I expected to reply to Joyce at that time? And then finally, just learning how to trust others more and not have to do everything myself and not have to kind of double check everything myself. And then finally, I was becoming known as kind of the doer. And so my CIO at the time, he said, you know, you're never going to get to the next level if people always see you as a doer and they're going to be afraid to promote you because then they're going to say, who's going to do the work if Joyce isn't here? And so all these things, I think even even my coach at that time, she held up, we were on Zoom and she held this big red button and it just said, no. (laughs) She was like, you need one of these buttons. And so, you know, be able to like, push it and not be afraid and say no or delegate. And so those were some things that I really had to reflect on and make deliberate steps to change that behavior, especially when things got busy, especially when there was something high profile coming up. It was, I would find myself trying to kind of slip back into that, into that mode. And so saying, no, you're not doing that. You better remember, you know, you're growing in, in a different direction and consciously make that effort. You know, and sometimes it was hard. <laughs> Just continuing it. I think as you practice new behaviors, it becomes easier. But I think without learning those lessons, I'll probably still be doing PowerPoints so at one if they found them right now if it bought so talking to you, to be honest. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just identify with that so much. I mean, as a type A, as someone who's a doer for my entire career, stepping into, you know, starting my own company and now multiple companies, I really struggled delegating and leading, really. I found out that I just wasn't doing a good enough job. I could paint the picture, but then in regard to kind of maintaining that touch point where I was giving people those opportunities and not just like taking the reins and running with the ball and then being like, you know, come on, guys, like do this, this and this. And then I just take off again, right? It wasn't working. So I worked with my business coach. It's funny, I'm talking with him a little bit here on that. And I also appreciate what you said. And what I took away from it was like work-life balance, right? That at this juncture is so important to me because the most profound realization for me of this was only a little less than a year ago, I just had a personal moment where I had one of the bigger meetings of my career, but there was some stuff going on at home. And I was kind of like, what is the point of all this if not for living like a really beautiful life with my family, whatever that looks like for any particular 
individual. And so I really kind of rededicated myself to that kind of separation of church and state where, you know, when I'm at work, I'm all in. Obviously, if my family reaches out, I'm going to text them or call them back. And But then when I'm home, I'm all in on my family, right? And that has really helped me kind of create that balance. And obviously, I also need to take care of myself so that I can show up for my family and show up for my colleagues. And for me, that looks like mindfulness and meditation, like trying to stay active and do yoga because it's easy for me to slip back into old behaviors if I don't maintain that mindfulness, right? It's a daily practice for me, so. It's like when you're watching those airplane safety videos, they always say, put your own oxygen mask on first, right? Before helping somebody else, you know, especially as leaders, we have to be healthy and we have to be in a good space, right? Mentally, spiritually, physically, so that we can lead others. Interesting though, I don't know if you've heard a phrase that's been going around for a few years, right? Instead of work-life balance, people are replacing that with work-life integration. And especially, I think, with the pandemic, we were forced to bring our work into our personal lives. So it's funny because, you know, you'll be on these Zoom meetings or team meetings and somebody's chip will be, you know, over there. I'll see like cat's tails, you know, going across the screen. You've seen that too, right? You know, maybe it's we have to come to the realization that work and personal life are a lot more integrated now. And I think in some ways it helps, you know, realize that your coworkers are people too. Right. They have families, they have issues, they have personal things that are going through. And I think it helps when, say, you're having a bad meeting with somebody or you're just not seeing eye to eye to think, well, maybe there's something going on with them. And just to seeing really seeing everybody through the lens of a little bit of more humanity. And so I think that's just an interesting culture shift that at least I've observed a little, you know, more since the pandemic. Yeah, that's definitely true. I like that work-life integration. So Joyce, let's transition back to Moffitt. We talked about the significant mission of the organization to eradicate or cure cancer. What are some of the key initiatives you're focused on? How does that overarching mission impact or inform your vision for IT and digital? Absolutely. There's a lot going on in Moffitt and it's great. And I mean, we're planning at, I think, doubling or, or at least 50% of increase one or the other of our workforce in the next five years. We're opening a new hospital end of July, actually. And I know many people have the exact number of days and hours to count that not all because they're excited or stressed or both. But the thought for this hospital is, is really to be almost a state of the art. You know, a worker enters the room to have real-time location tracking so that there'll be always announcing, you know, and also on a TV screen, who it is coming in, their name, their role, right? Just to put the patient a little bit more at ease, right? Just got these kind of smart that are going to, you know, take the vitals of the patient and then just automatically send that data to the EMR. The ability for the patients to kind of control their own ambience, right? Through, you know, lowering the blinds and volume of things and so forth. So that's really exciting. I think that another huge thing we're doing is we just broke ground on 700 acres of land in Pasco County. And that's bigger than downtown Tampa, just to give you an idea of size. Exactly. It's a square mile. And right now it's just wetlands. But the vision is to really develop this into almost like a life sciences park. So to be kind of like a hub and spoke model with, of course, patient care at the center. So hospital outpatient, lab services, imaging, but also to have research there, maybe to bring in some tech innovators, you know, as using incubator programs. We've been talking to like YMCA's so hospitality because the thought is this could actually be a place for people from not only outside of Florida, anywhere in the United States, even, you know, from outside of the country to really get this cutting edge treatment. And the beauty of it is right now, it's just wetlands. And 
as part of the vision, you know, I think over 50% of this land is going to stay as is, even when it's fully developed. And it's a part of the philosophy behind that is part of the healing journey, right? It's the ability now to have patients be able to walk outside and kind of reflect and to your point, you know, meditate on nature and just really be in that natural state. And mm. even keeping like the trees as is and not putting in like the ubiquitous palm trees, <laughs> you know, necessarily. And so I think that vision is just amazing. And to be able to say that I and we had a hand in developing this, I think a lot of us kind of want to be able to leave a little bit of a legacy and you know, sure. be part of something that's going to live on long after you're gone. And so to be able to say, I had a hand in, in building this and making a difference in something so amazing. To me, that's super exciting. And then third thing I would say is that because our mission is to prevent and cure cancer, we are very much a research institution. And I think all of our clinicians also do research. Our CEO he has a lab that he goes in and he does research. And so that has brought, from a technology standpoint, a very interesting dynamic that I hadn't anticipated. Because the thing about research is you do it once and then if you want to do it again, then it's no longer research because research, you're always trying to do something new. And so the technology needs are ever evolving in terms of needing, wanting to develop new applications, new models, new algorithms, needing additional horsepower for high performance computing. And so IT, we love standardization. We love guidelines. We love templates. We love like kind of having our whole tech stack look very much the same. So it's been interesting to figure out how do we balance the kind of the more traditional tech shop side of what we do with these unique needs, you know, from a research standpoint. And so it's almost like we need to develop, you know, standardizations around exceptions. And so how do we really have people can, one, I think it's going to be very important that people can talk the talk and walk the walk. So having tech people who also have that research background so who can understand what these brilliant minds are looking for, and then having a process by which we can quickly kind of spin things up and quickly, but in the most safe and secure manner. And so, you know, we haven't really spent a lot of time focusing around that, but I think that's going to just be critical to drive and advance things forward. It's been fun. Really exciting. Super exciting. Have you guys coordinated with any other research hospitals in regard to how they've stood up things like that or how you guys are both doing things similarly or differently? Like when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about like St. Jude or other organizations that have maybe not in the same specialty, but a substantial research arm and kind of lessons learned. You know, I know with PHI and everything, like there's a fair amount of sensitivity, even with potentially proprietary or practices that are unique to the organization. But at the same time, I was just curious, is that something that happens or? I think that's great thought. Honestly, in full transparency, I probably spent the last five months just finished drinking from the fire. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. What am I saying? I just remembered you've only been there five months. <laughs> Learning the landscape, meeting stakeholders and just the team. But I think to your point, I mean, that's something I definitely want to do, right? The healthcare IT community is small and I'm sure the, the cancer healthcare IT community is even smaller. And so I think collaborating with these peers, because we all have the same mission, I think is something I definitely want to do and start having those conversations and just sharing. Very cool. What about some of the biggest challenges you see Moffitt facing at this time? I imagine some of them are probably similar to a number of the other healthcare organizations out there, but what's your experience been regarding that? I think it's probably figuring out how to scale quickly, you know, with the desired 
growth from that's coming from leadership, we've kind of grown up as somebody called it a, a clinic on a hill, right? So kind of figured our way around as the organization itself is, was founded, I think, in 1986. And so it's not that old compared to some other really long-standing institutions. So I think a lot of it's been developed as we go along. But now it's time to say, you know, how do we standardize? Because without standardization, we can't scale, right? And how do we get our data to a place where it's easily accessible? And so we can, across systems, so we can use it. I think with my technology hat on, just our cyber posture is going to be even you know, more critical than ever. Because I think as you grow, you have more employees and you know a lot of vulnerabilities just occur because of things that happen, you know, just from a human standpoint, right? So just thinking about growth and, you know, one of the things, the phrases that I like to use a lot is just future-proofing our foundation. And from a technology standpoint, not being so reactive and saying, oh, okay, now it's time to beef up our infrastructure or, you know, now it's time to patch this, but to be planning ahead and saying, what is our a cloud strategy going to be, you know, what is our master data management strategy? What is our interoperability strategy? Just stopping for a little bit to think about these things and then start socializing what we're trying to do because none of these things will happen overnight and none of these things will happen without investment, right? And so you need to start now because it'll take a while. It's not necessarily a challenge, but I think it will become a challenge if we don't start being really thoughtful and planning, investing in, you know, even our architecture function, you know, our EA and, you know, ensuring that technology isn't the limiting factor in yeah. growth. And I think that, I mean, consulting background comes through too. you know, organizational change management, right, is one of the things I hear when you mention some of that, just because so much of what we do is really, you know, going out in the organization and enrolling stakeholders, hearing what's going on in their world, understanding their vision for the future, because, oh, by the way, oftentimes there is various stakeholders in the organization that know where we need to go. And oftentimes they may think they have a different vision than, than this individual, but it turns out that it's not that different. It's right. my job to kind of tie that all together into something that everybody can get behind, right? Yeah. And you know, as you grow, it's easy to forget that sometimes the messages from the top don't always trickle all the way down. And so to us, we're like, oh, well, it's obvious. These are our top priorities. You know, especially at our level, when you're hearing about them all the time in leadership meetings. And I think sometimes we forget to cascade it downward. Then our folks, our team members, they're getting tapped on the shoulder for other projects that sound very important. And they probably are, but they don't have enough knowledge to push back and say, well, this isn't on the roadmap, right? Or can you explain a little bit more like, you know, what this project is? You know, they don't know. And they're, you know, just trying to be helpful as many IT professionals are, but we end up then, you know, really being scattered and what we do and not in alignment with just really the overall organizational strategy and goals. So I think, you know, with growth, you know, you're absolutely right. Change management, communication, and just making sure we're constantly on the same page is so important. So Joyce, a couple last questions here as we wrap up. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes in healthcare? Where do you see the industry going in the future? Any thoughts on that? And it's a vast question, so just uh... <laughs> okay. healthcare in general or healthcare technology. Dealer's choice. <laughs> Dealer's choice. I like that. I think this really integration of digitization with the human connection is going to be more important than ever. You know, as I said, I think we were forced into digital with the pandemic, but now it's a matter of how do we figure out what is the right balance 
of digitization, you know, and the human touch. Because healthcare is unique in that you're never going to be 100% digital. You can't. It's not like at Domino's where you can get your pizza and you don't have to talk to a person at all or even see a person, right? And so how do we best really, you know, figure out what that balance needs to look like, I think it's going to be key. And I think, as I had mentioned earlier, really diving more into data and getting insights out of it. There's so much data that's locked up in the EMR, you know, and it's hard to get to whether it's because it's in unstructured format or whether it's just these really, you know, monolithic systems make it very hard to get data out of sometimes. And as we talked about patients, they're going to multiple places now. So how do we have better strategies around interoperability, especially with regulations increasing around data sharing and transparency, right? How do we really nail that down so that we have all the data to make it for a better patient experience, to provide better care? And I think we really need to start focusing there versus just always doing what's worked in the past and saying, oh, well, we've always done it that way. You have to rely on the data to understand, you know, where you need to focus and what you need to do. I think the third thing, and, and we've talked about this, is putting a lot of focus and attention on cyber. I mean, it's horrible why healthcare institutions are targeted. And that's because of that human component, right? If you get hit with ransomware, they'll hit the the hospitals because they know that lives are are on the line. And it's just horrible to think about, but it is what it is. And so really putting that focus on it. And sometimes it's actually always, it's more than just your cyber posture. It's about working with the organization to ensure that you have proper business continuity plans in place. Right. You understand your downtime procedures and you know, you're running drills and tabletop exercises. It's not glamorous, but it's so important. And so I think really getting us into that state of just security is everyone's business is going to be even more crucial to healthcare than ever before. Yeah, huge. Two last thoughts on that. And I saw Health Gorilla and Clear are rolling out this program where you're going to be able to take your data with you. I need to get more details. It's something that I'm going to look into at five later this month. So I'll I'll report back to everyone. But I thought that was really cool. So anybody who's listening, I would definitely check that out. And then in regard to cybersecurity and just what you said just made me think of this because, yes, zero trust. Yes, having a sock and, and all of that, but also we see that like 50% of the time with these attacks, what's happening is an individual within the organization who's just like disgruntled or wants to make some money or whatever is going outside of the organization and siphoning information out so that the attack can happen, right? So to me- they're not aware and they're clicking on a phishing link, right? right. And nobody knows to them, right? So- Right, so I think that the education is important, kind of like you said, and what am I doing to impact the culture of the organization so that people don't feel like they need to do that? Because anybody could be in that position, but just something I thought of randomly. So Joyce, last question. If you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I think probably just enjoy the journey, you know, where you're at and not always be, you know, thinking what's the next goal, what's the next step. You know, I've since learned since then, and you know, and I tell my folks this all the time, like you have to love what you're doing. You have to like the people you're working with, like not a hundred percent of the time, but we spend right. way too much time at work and our careers to not really like what you're doing and feel connected to the, the mission and to the organization and feeling like you're making a difference. And so I think really having more of that attitude and being more relaxed and freed about it, I think is probably not the advice I would have given my younger self. I wish you would have given my younger self that advice (laughs) as well. You're absolutely right though. I mean, I've come to find, right? The present is a gift. 
right? Mm-hmm. That's not guaranteed. And I mean, working at an organization like Moffitt, you see that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with like childhood cancer and leukemia. Mm-hmm. So to not be enjoying what I do and trying to be grateful, right? God knows I'm not grateful all the time, but like really working on that is so important to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just great advice. When, when I used to have an office that I went to every day, I had a sticky that I put on the wall and it said, you know, nobody's tombstone ever said, wish I went to more meetings. <laughs> right. <laughs> you got to put everything into perspective for sure. hundred percent. Joyce, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, no, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation, David. It's been a pleasure to be here. Me too. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in and we will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.